This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. All right, we have until, like, you have stuff at 2.30 today, is that correct? Okay, so we'll shoot, to, we'll shoot, we'll see how this is, how time this is, but 2.15, 2.20, try and stick it out. I know that after four, well, it's like 50 minutes, that's when the bleed starts at Villanova. Any presentation that goes over 50 minutes, it just is like somebody just like slits the aorta and they just <laughs> all over the place. So, so we'll, we'll be able to stay together. I'm aware of your, your time and we'll, uh, we'll shoot to wrap up at like 20 after, something like that. All right. Last year, Ralph, uh, it was the first time I had talked to the leadership group. You guys are all new, right? Yes. So why did I make a new presentation? That's the question that's facing me now. Uh, this is not what I did last year, basically. Uh, this, but the, the theme is different. Um, the theme of, of what I'm talking to you today, hey, Christina, is about social responsibility. Uh, that's the sort of the theme of the leadership idea. Um, and I'm just, I want to spend some time talking about that idea and kind of breaking that down. I'm kind of playing with this idea in my own research. As some of you may know, I teach a course here on campus on, on genocide, and so I spend a lot of time, I'm with the Center for Peace and Justice, I spend a lot of time thinking about atrocity. I spend a lot of time thinking about why people do terrible, horrible, no good, very bad things to other people. And so that's this sort of macabre sort of research that I do, but, but I'm ultimately interested in what it means to be human uh, and what it means to, to have um, sort of agency to how we conceive ourselves, how we think of ourselves in the world, how we operate vis-a-vis uh, -vis other people, and, and sort of the sort of animals that we are. So I, I tend to a lot of, do a lot of focus on social um, on biology, on neuroscience, um, and things like that, coupled with this study of genocide, which is a little bit unusual because that, that's usually not what, um, not what you, you find in, in most research. But I, I find that this is a, a new kind of thing that, that is happening in research and that science is really outstripping philosophy and sociology when it comes to understanding who we are as uh, human beings. And so this is what my presentation is going to be on is the sort of kind of where, where I am right now in, in uh, this understanding of who we are as social beings. And so I have this tricky little word play of the idea of social responsibility to social responsibility. Um, you could play that out, the ability to respond socially, or you could play with those words. But I think there's, the reason I, I, I split these up is because um, social responsibility sounds like a burden. Social resp responsibility, when we think of that word, we always think of it as something we have to do. It's not something we would ever choose to do, but we must do it because we know that somehow it's better for us or we're fulfilling a certain requirement, and so we have to do it. It's your responsibility to watch your little brother and make sure he doesn't get out. You know, it's your responsibility to get good grades so you can get a good job. It's your responsibility to take care of yourself so you don't fall apart. It's your responsibility, blah, 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 right? So that has a kind of a negative connotation, which I think is indicative of the way we think about and the way we have thought about who we are as social animals. And I, so I, I want to sort of focus on this idea of the, the, our ability to respond socially, our social responsibility, not as something that is something that is foisted upon us, but actually something that is a part of who we are a, as human beings. Um, and so this comes from really a self-understanding of who, who we are. And, 
and I, in many ways, we are inheritors of a culture and of a construct which is based on the idea of the selfish gene. Uh, it, is, it is sort of where we have been in the last 100 years, in the last 50 years of, of scholarship about genetics, about the way we think about our relationship to who we are. Um, and, I, and I'm becoming increasingly impatient with the idea of the selfish gene. I grew up with this idea. I think you have too, although less so than, than me. I'm a generation in front of you. I'm your, I'm your dad for, for many of you, right? But, it, but uh, the more I look into it and the more I study science and the brain and the way we sort of act and, and operate, that this, this idea is coming under fire from me. And I'm, I'm becoming to see how the selfish gene is really a construct, a conglomeration of, of several factors in Western culture in particular that have come together to present this sort of idea about who we are as human beings. And part of this comes from my own study of history and science, but also a lot of it comes from my own experience in being in other cultures. I um, have spent quite a, number of, uh, quite a lot of time in Rwanda because of my work on genocide, and I have a summer course that I, that I take over there every three years uh, through Villanova. And so I've spent a lot of time in other cultures other than my own, and to start to see how other people on this planet sort of interact with one another has made me question whether or not this is a universal truth of the, of, the, of the selfish gene, which is premised on the idea that at all points and at all times, the thing that we consider most when we consider what action we should take is based on the premise that we need to do the thing that will optimize our own benefits, and that this is an operational uh, prerequisite that we come into everything we do, we judge whether it's unconscious or not, we judge whether or not this action will be good for us. And when I say us, I mean me, individually. And that has been the way that most of this has, has come down. But I think there's a lot of things that have, that have come into the way we have seen this. I won't go into too, I don't want to go into too much of the historical details of it, but these are kind of the four things that I think have really, um, shape the way that we think about ourselves and the way we think about how we interact with people, especially when it comes to ideas of social responsibility, of what we think of as social responsibility as caring for other people, right? That's the burden that we carry. We have to care for other people. Why? Well, because that's a good thing, right? But it's, it's, it's really a, a, an antithesis of the selfish gene. First of all is the Enlightenment in the 18th century, and all I want to say about that is that this was the first time really in human history, and I, I would say this even, and I, this is kind of daring, it's the first time in human history when people started to think of themselves as an autonomous I, a separate autonomous I that is completely uh, separate from other people. And that relationships between people are the at the at the, the choice or at the, uh, the sort of the liberty of the people that choose to be in a relationship, that you choose to be in relationships with other people, you choose to do these things, and so we're not intrinsically connected to one another, we are an autonomous I that functions in a, in a world with lots of other autonomous eyes, and so our job is to sort of negotiate how we relate to those other eyes to make sure that this eye is, comes out with the most optimal um, uh, results, right, that we get the most. And that takes a lot of negotiation, that takes sometimes you have to concede some things, you have to go force other things, that's sort of the art of it. But that idea that we are an autonomous separate I is almost so ingrained in us at this point that it's hard for us to consider anything else than that, that somehow we are intrinsically connected to other people. 
But this is something that comes out of the Enlightenment. It also then comes out of the idea of a free market economy, and that the free market economy is based on the idea that if every person um, pursues their own individual self-interest, then in the, in the totality of the whole, everyone will um, succeed. It's a, it's a weird kind of ironic twist. This is Nash. This is beautiful mind stuff. Anybody do game theory? Anybody interested? Anybody study game theory at all? A few of you? Yeah, the premise is, is that you have to make all decisions based on what's best for you. And if another person is making their decisions based on what's best for them, then somehow that will reach what Nash called the Nash's equilibrium. And that will, that will create a, an, an economy or an equality between people, even though people are not getting everything they want. It's based on the premise that everyone must act in their own self-interest. And that if you don't act in your own self-interest, then you'll get screwed. Because you'll lose because you assume that the other person is always acting on their best interest, so you have to act on your best interest in order to counteract their best interest, right? Which is what caused, the, which is what came out of the Cold War. And that's what resulted in the Cold War, this idea that we need to have as many weapons as them because we're assuming that they're going to destroy us if they have more, and the only way we can be assured that they're not going to destroy us is if we have as many, if not more, and then they're going to think, well, if they have more, they can destroy us. So the only way we can prevent them, because we assume they're going to destroy us, is for us to have a little bit more. And then it goes on and on and on. right? But it's premised on the idea that we are individuals out for our own good and that we don't, the only people we care about is ourselves. The Cold War came out of, out of uh, I think, what's underneath that is the sort of Nazi, um, the Nazis. World War II impacted the way Western cultures thought about themselves and thought about the relationship of the I and the relationship of the group in a very negative way. And in, in many ways, the Nazis catapulted us into the Cold War, into that, into that um, the understanding that we can't trust authority, that we can't trust the group to take care of the individual. Because what Nazi Germany showed was that if you give up your personal autonomy, you will be made to do atrocious things. And this is what the Nazis did with convincing uh, the, the German culture and the German country to go along with, the, with World War II and, and, in particular, the Holocaust. And so that fear of being manipulated by a greater whole than yourself and, and the way the West interpreted that was that Germans gave up their autonomy. They surrendered the, their own choice for a higher uh, power. And even if they thought it was for the common good, they surrendered that autonomy. And when that happens, then atrocities happen. So what we took out of, the, out of the Nazis, which when we applied to the Cold War, is that idea that it's very dangerous for you to give up your individual self-interest because you can pretty much be guaranteed that you will be taken advantage of. So for you to give up your self-interest somehow is a very dangerous thing. And out of that comes uh, Ayn Rand, uh, the sort of the fountainhead mentality, the sort of assumption that everyone is out to take from you. So the only thing you can do in response to that is to assume that they're going to take everything you and try to take it from them first. And therefore, that comes, that's, the, that's the Cold War, that's game theory, that's prisoner's dilemma, that's all of that stuff, which actually we're still, we're still very much in the midst of. I mean, we live in a different world right now, but for the most part, culturally, we're still in that, in that position. Which brings up the idea of peer pressure. I mean, and, and when, I, when you apply this sort of um, 
mentality down and boil it down to where you guys live, to where we live on a sort of day-to-day -day level. These, these all are geopolitical theories and sort of uh, abstract ideas about surrendering to governments and you know, all this kind of stuff. But in fact, it's actually affected the way that we think about something like peer pressure. My guess is that most of you think of peer pressure as a negative thing. And my guess is that most of your uh, parents told you that peer pressure is a bad thing. And that if you give in to peer pressure, you will be, find yourself doing some very bad things and that you'll give yourself up to the mob mentality and it will take you down this path that will make you that make, you make um, terrible mistakes and you'll find yourself living in your parents' basement just, you know, sucking weed instead of succeeding. Suc succeed or suck weed, that's, yeah, that's the idea, right? So... <laughs> So that, again, that's, got, that's the way that this has kind of come out. But I, but I think there's a, there's a, this is what I'm, this is what's, this is what I'm questioning. And I think that the science that's coming out on this and the way we think about what it means to interact with other people and this sort of fear that we have of acting in groups, of, of being social as, a, as that, as though being social is going to compromise our integrity as autonomous, islands, this atomic people, and by atomic I mean atoms, like broken down into a singular uh, thing that does not need anything else in order for it to be an atom. That's a very atomized, we, we live in a very atomized society that it breaks down to, to that we are islands, and I don't need anyone to be attached to me unless I choose it, unless it's pleasurable for me, unless it's advantageous for me, unless I find some advantage in being in relationship with you. But for the most part, I want to make sure I maintain my, in, my individual integrity and not open myself up to the dangers of being vulnerable or, or, or interacting with people on, on, on that respect. Unless I control it. Unless I control it. That's part of the language of that. This is where neuroscience starts to come in. This is what's kind of the interesting thing about the way, uh, the, what neuroscientists are finding out about the human brain, about the way that we interact in the world, about the way our brains think about other brains in the world, the way we think about our, ourselves. Um, there are two things that are, that are, that are very social. There's two, um, anybody do this? I'm just kind of curious, so anybody take a bio course in here? That anybody do neuroscience? You've done some bio on this kind of stuff? Okay, that's good. Not nearly enough, but that's all right. Um, but there's kind of the way that, I w it's not going to get too, it's going to get a little technical, but not too bad. I'm not a scientist. I'm a, I'm a historian, right? I'm not, I, I come into this not from the history of science. I come in it as a historian um, who just wants to figure things out. So I'm trying to, I'll try to make it understandable, right? But there are, are two ways in, in which neuroscientists are finding that we interact with other people. We do it through mirroring and mentalizing. Mirroring is what, what happens if you ever find yourself in a, uh, a crowd or with another person and um, you begin to mirror their um, demeanor. Uh, you mirror sometimes their facial expressions. That's like when somebody laughs and you laugh too, but you don't know why you're laughing because I don't really know. But right, but you, see, you just laugh there. But we, we do this unconsciously. We have a way of, of mirroring what, what happens. Babies do this. Uh, mammals do this, chimps do this, uh, primates do this all, all the time in a sort of a rudimentary way. And this is sort of an autonomic response. This is something that is stimulated in our brain, but it only comes from a particular part of our brain, right, that, about mirroring. 
uh, about the way that we do that. And we do this unconsciously, and it's a way that we bond or connect with other people around us. But then there's another part. Um, this is, this an the mirroring answers the question, what are they doing, right? But mentalizing is something that is distinctly human, and this is what they're finding out, that this is the question which we ask ourselves when we're with other people, and we ask ourselves why they're doing it. And this is something that's distinctive from other uh, mammals, from other uh, from primates. Um, this is something that's distinctly human, that we have the ability not only to mirror, but also to mentalize. And the interesting thing is that this comes from uh, a different part of our brain than the mirroring part. The mirroring part is from one part, but the mentalizing comes from, is, is more from the, our prefrontal cortex. This is this part of the brain right up here, that top level, if you see. I have a picture of the brain a, a little bit, but it's kind of that top layer. This is where we just blow other mammals out of the water. The amount of our cortex, which is where we do, it's like our hard drive, it's our RAM, it's, it's how much stuff we can store, how much we can process at any one time. We, we, can, we can process so much more information from our environment than, than other mammals or other, even primates, even our closest relatives. We're just, we just blow them out of the water. And that's where mentalizing comes in. And mentalizing is, is this uh, of the thing that we do, and we do it so instinctually that, we, that we don't even, we're not even aware of it. And, and part of what's interesting about looking at this sort of stuff is you become aware of the things that you take for granted so, so much. And, and mentalizing is the idea of, like when I'm teaching, I, it's, I see people yawning sometimes, they're like pretending not to yawn, they try to do the, like that, you know, and their, their eyes sort of flicker and then they start to water up and they kind of quiver a little bit, and I know they're yawning, right? And I'm mentalizing, and I'm able to mentalize like for that, like that isn't just a display of odd facial expressions to me. Like I know what they're doing, and I, see, I, I'm suppressing the urge to yawn myself, Yawn. Yawn. How many people are thinking about, how many people are fighting back a yawn right now? Come on, show of hands. Yes, that's mirroring. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm like, I'm like all tingly right here. I gotta like, yawning is contagious. Yawning is one of those mirroring things. Like you don't control that. That's mirroring. Look at that, that's a fantastic one. I know, that was, <laughs> that was bold. I like that. Uh, but mentalizing is, is asking yourself not just what's happening and mirroring, but why are they happening? Oh, they're tired. Oh, they're bored. Oh, it's two in the afternoon on a Friday, you know, uh, you know which is the new Saturday, right? It's Saturday to you now, actually, because Friday's like coming in on Saturday, because Thursday's the new Friday. That would make this Saturday. Um, but, uh, but so this is what's different about us. And so what we do is we, there's this term called affect matching, and this leads to distress. When we see someone in distress, we not only see what they're doing, but we read their minds and we see that affect, and that causes distress in us. And this is autonomic too. We don't choose to do this. So when we see someone in trouble, when we see them crying or, or in distress, we feel that too. And that triggers a fight or flight uh, in us. In the same way that when somebody uh, comes up behind us and like boom, grabs us, I mean that, that, that shot of adrenaline, that fight or flight thing, we do that mentally as well. And that can trigger two things. We can either fight to, to get rid of that distress. This is what causes distress in, the, in our brain. When we see people in distress, we mirror that, and we also mentalize it, and then we want to get rid of it. This is what comes down to social responsibility in a little ways, in, in one little way, is that that choice about whether we fight or flight is, is something that we, you can have control of. 
just like what you can fight or you can choose to fight or flight when somebody attacks you, you can also choose to fight or flight. Now, most people, when they see, I don't know, you watch TV at night, you see these, uh, the commercials for uh, all these African children that are starving and, or, or uh, you know, and, it's, and you see these horrible pictures of these children and they have these distended bellies and the, they show them close up with their eyes and the flies around them and everything. And, you're, and you, have this, you have this response. How many times do you pick up the phone and call? Or how many times do you just change the channel? That's fight or flight. Seeing that sort of thing elicits a response in us most of the time, and I'm the first to say it, I just change the channel because I feel manipulated, right? But I, but I also know that this, is a, this makes me feel something that I don't want to feel, and it's a fight or flight thing. And mostly I run from that sort of thing because I think that's manipulative. But anyway, it's not as important as that, that moment when you see that, that thing. And that's an important part of what it means for us to be human, and, and this happens, they're finding, whether we want to happen or not. This is not something we choose. This just happens when it's triggered, when we see this kind of stuff. So the, the question is, why be good? Um, and what we're finding out, and what neuroscientists are finding out about goodness, about acting, about, about addressing that distress by doing something to solve it, instead of just running away from it, that there is a, there is a lot of uh, emerging tech, um, uh, science is it says that, that when we act good, that we feel good, that we tend to favor kindness and fairness over uh, in inequity. Uh, in the prisoner's dilemma thing, there's an experiment where you have this thing where you can either take the bet, uh, you have a bet, you each have five bucks, and, if you, say, and, if, and you don't know what your partner is going to do, and you say, well, if you accept to, to compromise or share, and they decide to take it all, then they take it all and you lose all the money. But if you decide not to share and they decide not to share, then you both don't get it. Or if you both decide to share, then you both get some and not others. You know, that, 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 that's prisoner's dilemma. And, then, and what game theory says is you should always assume the other person's going to take and you should always refuse to share. Because at least you'll never get taken advantage of that way. Because either they will not share and you'll get it all, or you'll both not share and you'll both get nothing, but that's equal. And what's worse is, if you decide to share and they don't, then you lose, because they win. That's what game theorists, that's what Nash said the best response to that is. But what's, when they hook up people to fMRIs, this functional magnetic resonance imagery equipment, and they do the same prisoner's dilemma with the same scenario, what they find is that if someone wins, that, that a certain parts of the pleasure centers of their brain, which is kind of deep in, like two inches in, two inches down, this sort of the right on the cusp of the midbrain and the, the cortex, there are pleasure centers in the brain that light up. But what they've also found, and this is the surprising part, is that the same pleasure centers light up when, when people decide to, to be fair. That, and, and in fact, they've shown that, that that being fair and having fairness and the perception of fairness when both win is actually more pleasurable to us than when we win and they lose. Because of that mentalizing that when we see someone lose, we mentalize that and that, that detracts from our pleasure, the pleasure centers of our brain, that we're, we're kind of wired to actually favor a cooperative end when both of parties win. Even if we don't get as much as we thought we could, we will tend to do that uh, and because that's more pleasurable. And if you play the prisoner's dilemma over time, it becomes very, that people eventually work themselves out into always compromising, always cooperating at all times, all the time. 
And, that, and that, that's what Nash didn't talk about. And that's what game theory doesn't tell you, is that we actually enjoy cooperation more than we enjoy being selfish. We get more pleasure out of that. So the idea of why to be good really is an existential question. But it, it's very easily answered. From a neurological point of view, you do, you do good because it feels good. It feels good. Boom, that's it. A lot of times we have why be good, well, because it will help us later on. We can utilize that relationship. That will help us. Or, or maybe, I mean, I come from an evangelical slash fundamentalist tradition, so why being good was very easy to answer because you didn't want to go to hell. You were good because you wanted to make sure that you were not bad. Because if you're bad, you're going to burn in hell for eternity. So if, but if you're good, you've got a chance of getting into heaven. So you want to be a good person so that when you meet St. Peter at these pearly gates, boy, you've got some, you pull out your wallet and boom, you got it. How much is that going to cost again? No problem, making it rain up here at, in heaven, right? So that's the idea of that it's, that we usually think of it as a calculation. I think this is what we've inherited, that we tend to think that it's only good to be good if it's good for us somewhere down the line when we can exploit that relationship or take advantage of that thing. We can learn to win friends and influence people and learn how to later on pull in those favors and then boom, we got it, right? We can, we can leverage that kind of stuff. We've been kind of taught to do that, to think of that in that way. But from a neurological standpoint, it doesn't pan out. In fact, um, what we're doing is, is that one of the things that makes us human is actually our ability to move beyond that sort of uh, commerce sort of exchange of things back and forth to, do, to actually operate at another level. And this is where you get uh, crossing over from just being a mammal to actually being uh, sapien, right? And, and it has to do with oxytocin and empathy. And this is where we're going we're gonna to do a little, a little brain action on you, okay? This is the idea I was kind of talking about before. Anybody heard of oxytocin? Anybody know what this stuff is? This is good shit. You want this. If, you could, if they could ever put this in a pill, this would be amazing stuff. Oxytocin is that stuff you feel, that wave, when you sink into your partner's eyes and just drown, right? When you're in love and when you're infatuated in that first and you just look in their eyes and you just like, oh my gee, what is happening to me? Like that feeling, that rush, that's oxytocin. When people, when mothers and fathers hold the baby for the first time and you lock eyes and they just stare into your eyes and you feel that rush, that like, oh my God, that's oxytocin, right? When you look at even other people's eyes, even for a, a, even more than a fraction of a second, you can get that thing. Now, if I were to do that here, and I won't because you're far away, but I sometimes do this. If, if you look into someone's eyes, I... And, and you look at for more than a split second, because usually we dance off people's eyes, and we can read them really fast, and we don't need to spend a lot of time on that because we're super good at, at analyzing. But if you lock eyes with someone and you hold that for more than like a point one, two, boom, it gets weird, creepy, really, really fast. Because what you're feeling is that rush of oxytocin, but it's out of context, right? Like, I don't know why I'm feeling this. I used, to be an act, I used to act in plays when I was in college, and that was one of the things I knew that I couldn't be an actor because I couldn't pretend to look at someone and pretend like I was in love with them because I really felt like I was in love with them, and that freaked me out. I was like, I don't want to feel that. That's like, I'm not in love with you, but, you know. But, that, but that's oxytocin. Oxytocin helps us to trust people. Um, that's why when women are in labor, they get oxytocin flooded into their bodies because 
they have to trust people, right? And so they, they, you, that's part of that idea of just, that's really, really an important drug, right? So what happens is an oxytocin comes from, uh, this is more the pleasure, the pleasure cent uh, centers right here. This is this part I was talking about. This is the, the cortex, and this is what's called the midbrain or the, uh, the, the septal region right in here. There's a real clutch of really, really important things that have to do with emotion and things. And when we're good and when we're kind, and they've done these things, uh, that when we see people that we know, we, we, there's a release of oxytocin, or and there's activity in this septal region, uh, which, which would trigger, that, which would indicate oxytocin and serotonin are, are, are at work, right? And so that idea of that this is pleasurable for us to be around people we know, and it also, but it doesn't work if we see people that are known hostiles or known enemies to us. But here's the interesting point, and this is new. Uh, this just came out, and this is, uh, I gave a talk to the ROTC people like, the, earlier this week about on the nature of killing. So I had 110 ship, midshipmen, and we were talking about why people kill other people, right? Which was pretty intimidating talk. But what we're, what we're talking about, what I kind of brought into that, which I think is really interesting, is that they found that not only do we get a, a shot of, oxy, uh, of activity in this pleasure centers of our brain, we see someone we know, but also that when we see people that we don't know, but we don't know if they're friend or foe, like we, just of people that look different than us, we find that pleasurable too. But, but we don't feel it when we know somebody is hostile to us or an enemy or something. But that's a really important distinction, I think, because we tend to think that we're only, we only feel pleasure for people we know and who have established relationships with us and who we feel safe with and who we can trust and all these things, and that's all true. But if, if you look at the science, we also feel pleasure just by looking at other people, by connecting with other people. And we don't have to know whether they're an enemy or a friend, but our default mode, and this is what's really the important part, like our default mode is to connect. Our default mode is to feel good about being curious about other people, about connecting with people, even if we don't know who they are. Now, over time, if you build that up, that trust, that only enhances that relationship, but our default mode is not suspicion. Not suspicion, and that's different from what your culture tells you. That, that, that is not true. <coughs> That is not true. But you can build that up. You can build up that, that idea, but it's not necessarily our default mode from a neurological standpoint, unless you can affect other parts of this, like the amygdala, which is down here, which is uh, more the fear centers of the brain. Once you start enhancing this fear centers of the brain, that can override this stuff no problem, because that's life or death stuff. And when, so if you start seeing enemy and you start associating signals with enemy and hostility, then you won't feel that pleasure at all. But this is something that you, that you can control, but that's kind of on down the line. And this is the idea of empathy. When you, when you couple mentalizing, that idea that we're able to mentalize and see from another person's point of view, and also that it's pleasurable for us to see other people, and that we don't like to see people in distress, that's empathy. That's, the, that's one of the things that is, that is one of the major, major um, tri uh, attributes that human beings have that, that other mammals don't, that has distinguished us in ways that has made it possible for us to be all over this planet. It has been possible for us to live in community in huge urban, urban centers, because we're an urban species, by the way. We're not rural. We gravitate towards cities. Like 80% of the population, or 85% of the world's population live in urban centers. Like we totally gravitate towards cities. We love cities, 
right? And, and as much as people romanticize about the small towns, and I grew up in a small town, so I know this is true, that's not where people gravitate toward. That's where people run from sometimes. And even when they say they want to live in a small town, they don't want to live in a small town. Trust me, you don't want to live in a small town. I mean, some people do like to, I guess, but, but by and large, <laughs> by and large. So those are, really, those are really, really important. So we get this idea that, we're, that, that kindness is not necessarily something that we learn, per se, or that the wiring for kindness is already in us, that that's our default mode. That's the way we come into this world. We come into this world to connect with people. We come in looking for ways to connect with people. And that mentalizing, that idea of seeing people, of seeing intentions and reading intentions in other people, which we're incredibly good at, is part of the way that we want to connect with them because we are naturally geared to help and cooperate because that's our default mode. Now, if that gets uh, pushed back, if we get rejected, then we will, there are other mechanisms that kick into that and we, come, become, we can come, become suspicious to the point where we can see another person and see an enemy in them. I'm not saying that that is not part of it either, but I'm trying to get down to that essential part, like what are the first things that kick in when we, when we, how we relate to other people. So the challenge, of our, of our, the challenge to our culture, and this is a challenge to our culture, what I'm talking to you about, because this sounds like what I'm telling you is to be naive, is to be trusting, is to let people take advantage of you, is to do all this stuff, and that's actually not what I'm saying at all. But that's what our culture tells us. It tells us that helping is hard and that it's unnatural. That, having, that, it, that being social is a responsibility. It's something that is unnatural to us. We have to work really hard at it, and we only do it so that we can maybe quell that guilt that maybe exists because we don't think that we're doing enough for whatever reason, whether, we're, whether we want to get into heaven or whether we just want to be a good person or whether we want to leverage that, uh, that good action so we can show off to other people and gain social um, uh, cred credibility with it, it doesn't really matter. But that's, not what, that's, that's where that challenges our culture. It also is a challenge to your theology. right? If it's a challenge to a theology that tells you that you are naturally sinners and that you are in need of help. That's, and that's, your base human, that's the basic human condition, is to be a sinner. And that if you are left to your own devices, you will just dive into, dive into sin and cruelty and meanness. And there's, there's, a, there's a legacy of this as well. Not just, I'm not just saying Catholic. I'm just saying this is not just about Christianity. There are, other, there are other traditions that have this as well. But this is a real challenge to that, this sort of construct of understanding what it means to be human. Whoops. So we have some barriers. Um, what are, so what are the barriers that we have actually to get behind this, to actually understand and to get to this place where we're unlocking this sort of idea? Empathy is a huge part of it. Empathy is essential to, to who we are. It's that we have all the abilities to do it, but what scientists are finding out is that empathy is not necessarily, it's, it has to be learned. It's not something that's automatic in us, which is a little bit, which is a little bit weird, what I'm saying is that the wiring is all there, the apparatus is there, the tendencies are there, but the idea of empathy is something that, it's, it's called the theory of, theory of the mind. And the idea, the premise of theory of the mind is that there was a time, and we know, I don't know if you have any really narcissistic friends who just, the whole basis of narcissism is the fact that there are people out there who can't understand, who don't see the world, can't see the world through anybody else's eyes but their own. So if it's good for them, then why wouldn't it be good for you? 
like, why wouldn't it be good for anyone? Because it fits me perfectly. Like, this system works great. Like, how could anybody complain about this? It works just fine for me. That, those are people with lack of empathy. What, where the, the stuff about theory of the mind is that there is a sort of a, an important shift in the way we think about um, other people that, that actually comes when you're about three years old, three to four years old. Um, and this is one of the things that also is one of the big tests to find out if, some, if children are, are autistic. That autism is, is one of the things, not, not all, autism is a complex thing, but one of the major things they, they are, that scientists think about autism is autistic kids. Anybody have autistic uh, brothers or sisters or know anybody who's autistic? Yes? You may, you may know this stuff then. That that ability to connect with another person is impaired. That the ability to see through, to, to, to have a, th that to see another person as another person in extreme forms. I have one of my best friends has, an, has a profoundly autistic son um, who, you know, and he, my, my buddy Paul is like, you know, when he sees me, I'm no different than, than, a, than a, a, a load of laundry. I mean, like, he's not, he doesn't, he doesn't connect. A supreme, uh, extreme autism is the inability to see another person as another person that aut autistic kids, in, uh, and at some level, find it difficult to interact with society because they, they can't, they don't think of things in social terms. They think of things as objects or numbers or relationships, but not social relationships. That's the part that's kind of a mystery. And so their interactions with people are very difficult and, and stilted. And you see this with high-functioning, high with Asperger's, can be very, very smart when it comes to numbers and relationships and objects, but when it comes to social interactions, really have no understanding because, because they're trying to figure this out is the theory of, of mind is that they have trouble seeing through another person's eyes, that there's parts of the brain perhaps that aren't functioning in the same way as ours do. And we take it so much for granted that it's hard for us to even imagine what it would be like for you to be sitting in this room and have no concept that there are other people in this room, just colors and objects. Like that's so hard for us to imagine that, it, that it, it's, it's, so, it's baffling because it's so much a part of us that we know we're with other people, but to, be, but to not have that is, is, is to just see objects around you. It's a, it's a, it, this is an unfolding story about, about autism. It's in a very interesting sort of condition. It's different from Downs. Downs kids have theory of the mind and operate very well with, with social situations, but may not have the sort of intellectual skills that, that autistic kids have, where they might be really high performing in some areas, but when it comes to sociability, they absolutely have no way to function at all, or very stilted or, or um, um, very find it very difficult. It's a language they don't know, right? Here's, I think we have one little, I want to show you what it looks like. Um, Watch. It's like a two-minute thing. A simple but startling experiment Janet Astington, also at the University of Toronto, does with three-year-olds like Jacob and a juice box. What's in the box? Juice. <laughs> Look at that. What are they? Jacob calls the ribbons ropes, which is fine because it's the next question that counts. What did you think was inside the box before I turned it over? Ropes. Ropes. It's surprising <laughs> when you think, well, surely they can remember. You know, they just said juice a moment ago. It's really surprising when they say, 
that they thought that there were ribbons in there. And you realize that they, they do, they just don't think about the world in the same way that we do. Okay, sorry Jacob, I just... Not only is Jacob now convinced he always thought there were ropes in the box, he also believes if he thinks something, so must everyone else. Jesse hasn't seen inside this box. What would Jesse think is inside before I turn it over? Ropes. The innocence of the three-year-old mind is both wonderful and a little spooky. <laughs> yeah. Right, so that's the idea, like he's not lying, he's not stupid, this is a high-functioning three-year-old, he's not, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but at some point you get, and I'll, I could show other, uh, there are other clips where you have five and six-year-olds, and when they cross over, all of a sudden they're able to imagine someone else coming into this situation, not with their mind, but with their own mind, which is different from theirs, and they can predict what that other person would think, because they have a mind of their own, with their own kind of, context that is different from their own. That, we cross over into that, and that's an, an incredibly important part of understanding that there are other people in the world and they might think differently than us, and that's okay. And that's part of the, what it means to, to differentiate ourselves from that. Right, so that's just a little kind of idea. So now I'm going to get into sort of the practical stuff, because i got a couple minutes left, um, and I've, the lesion has been made. There's already some bleeding. But, uh, but we're not going to cut much deeper, right? So what can you do in the, in the course of this? This is the idea of there are things that you can do in order to build up this part of yourself. And this comes back to the social responsibility part. Like what kind of person do you want to become? Because you do, well, a lot of the stuff I talked about is stuff that happens unconsciously or a bit underneath and, and not, is, we're not necessarily aware of it. That doesn't mean that you can't be. And when you become aware of these things, you actually have a ton of control over how much you can build this, and that you can build capacity um, to actually be more empathic, to be more in touch, to be better at reading other people's intentions. And this, this is something that I've been working on because I work with, with perpetrators of genocide. So I make it my business to try to understand what it was like to be in that person's mind where they thought the best thing in that situation was to kill uh, to kill someone, like slaughter, like kill it with a machete, or dash a baby against a wall, or do any number of horrific things, like what is that for, what kind of exercise, a theory of the mind does it take to get inside that person's mind and think, what mu must that have been like to be there? How, what conditions would it need to have been for me to be able to come to that place, right? Which is very hard to do in a way, but, but what it's done, interestingly, and I didn't know this ahead of time, is over the years of contemplating this stuff, it's actually built up a capacity to understand other people in ways that, that allow me to feel more, to feel and to, and to experience more of humanity. It's actually expanded my, my understanding of what it means to be human. It hasn't been as nearly as depressing as I thought, and I'm completely blown out of the water on that. I had no idea that that was coming. All I knew is that I, I, went, I, had, answered, I had questions that I wanted answers. I haven't got all the answers yet, but it is possible for you to build up this capacity and become very good at this, of feeling this. But the problem is, also when you feel this, then you have a responsibility because that causes distress when you see someone, and then what do you have to do, fight or flight, then you have that choice. So you have a choice, you can either turn away, you don't have to do any of this. You can, you can actually shut this part down. You can shut down empathy if you want to. And a lot of people do because we live in a multicultural world which is full of so many problems. And so if we crack and open ourselves up to this 
the, 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 the suffering of others. It's just going to be too painful for us, so we just need to change the channel. So I'm telling you this is a risk. If you choose to do this, this is risky. This is going to make your life different. Is it going to make it worse? No. Is it going to make it harder? Yes. But it's going to expand you in a way that, that and you're going to build capacity. And this is the one thing that, that is important that I really want you to take away. This is a, my bumper sticker for today. Don't let fear override your septal region or your oxytocin flow. <laughs> right? And everybody will know what you're talking about. Right? But because what, what, when you open yourself up to this, not only do you open yourself up to the risk and the burden of what it means to do this, but the opportunity to live a life full of pleasure, of what it means to be, in, to be in relationship with another person, to be truly social, that actually, there's the other side of it is, is it feels great. It feels great because you're not running all the time looking for other, this is like the kind of brain rush that's way better than, than, than drugs. Way better than that because this is real stuff. This is better than pharmaceutical, right? It's not, this is better than oxy, oxycotton. This is oxytocin, right? This is, this is the real stuff and you have, you have access to this as well. And I guess what I want to go away, uh, what I want to really leave you with is this idea that we, this is a different way of thinking about who we are as people and that we are not this sort of atomized people who are just looking out and living with that fear that everyone's going to take advantage of us and screw us over the first time they get, but that, we should, that we're actually embracing our humanity if we respond to that and, and actually open ourselves up in a, in a way that is more human, I think, than that sort of closed shell that we have been uh, put in by, by our culture. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you.